Ko te mahitu o tahi ki te atua a ihu karaiti. Ko te mahitu o reo ki tēnei whenua. Ko te mahitu o toru ki a koutou katoa. Nō reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. Kia ora. Thanks, David, for reading, reading the passage. Yeah, so we're in our, our Praying Church series in the past couple of weeks. Clint has preached on our midday rhythm of praying for the lost and our evening rhythm of praying gratitude. And this morning we're going to close out with the praying the Lord's Prayer in the morning as we do each day. So I want to shout out to some of these books that have shaped a lot of the sermon series in my message this morning. It's really annoyed me how they're all different dimensions, those three photos. <laughs> so let's just change the slide. <laughs> yeah, all right. Let's pray this morning. God, we thank you for your presence with us, for the gift of your word and how you taught us to pray. With the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, teach us to pray. Amen. Amen. So Jesus talks about the temple, the, the house of God, to be a house of prayer for all nations. And this comes up in all four Gospels. And we know when it's in all four, it's, it's important. So that's what we're, we're leaning into as a church. We want to become that praying church that embodies his presence as we, as we meet in prayer together. So today we're working, working through the Lord's Prayer. Thanks to my mum right here. I can make a good roast chicken. She taught me well. <laughs> but... <laughs> This, this week, I, I bought a chicken and I wanted to make a great roast chicken. I wanted to level my game. I wanted to make an excellent roast chicken. So I researched a lot. We went on a lot of different cooking blogs, read through all the New York Times cooking, all the comments section, got all the tips, all the stuff. I was full into it. Found a recipe that looked like it had stood the test of time and had been cooked by thousands of cooks around the world. I cooked it. I adhered to the recipe as much as I could, which is not a, not a strong suit of mine. I much prefer to look at the picture, look at some ingredients, and kind of synthesize and make it up. I was like, no, I'm going to submit to this recipe and follow it. And it was awesome. Best trick I've ever cooked. So if you, if you want the recipe, come find me after. But within, within that, I noticed in myself a real... It was, I needed to step into humility to actually submit to the, to the structure of the recipe. And, and within that, I noticed a bit of pride and control kind of swimming around in myself. So much like, much like the recipe was for me, I know this, this prayer structure, this daily rhythm, can give beauty and depth to our prayer lives. It can take us from good to great. Over time, right, we know that habits take a while to set in and to form. And if you're struggling with it and tempted like me, as I was halfway through when, the, when my oven was smoking, I was tempted to give up. Um, stick it out, this prayer rhythm is time-tested and is, is good, it helps us. And you might even find, as you pray at these three times in the day, a, an upskilling and a widening of how and what to pray for. This rhythm of praying is both a structure to hold you when you have no words or little time, and it is also a template with which you can, you can face and you can go deep on the different themes that the Lord brings for us in prayer. The, the Didache is a, a Greek document that is the earliest documented church order from the first century. And here we see that that early church, that just kind of one, one step removed from Jesus, they were called to pray the Lord's Prayer each and every morning. This rhythm has been around. It's not new. It might be new for us here, but it's been around for more than 2,000 years. 
So perhaps we can listen more to that, to that structure and the, the 2,000 years of church history and practice. We can listen to that more than we can our desire for a bit more sleep. Or the pride in us, or maybe it's just me, that resists that kind of external structure. And praying this way, this is the, the rebe- rebellious fidelity that we have been talking about day in and day out. Pausing in these daily rhythms, I admit I haven't done it perfectly, but as I've grown in it, it's helped me to name my kind of aversion to more specific prayer or my bent towards praying bigger spiritual climate, loftier prayers. Um, But in pausing to pray specifically the Lord's Prayer, the Lord has really rekindled in me a childlike delight of praying specifically, of bringing requests to him and asking him to move. It's rekindling that childlike relationship. Because the problem with God is that he's far more relational, far less authoritarian, and far more simple than we ever expect or want him to be. And feasting on the Lord's Prayer each morning places us hand in hand with the true God. Praying it every morning gets us to the heart of our faith, back to that primal Christianity of that Acts 2 church. So the Lord's Prayer of the Our Father comes up twice in both Matthew and Luke. And Luke's version begins with a disciple asking Jesus, Lord, teach us how to pray as John taught his disciples. So rabbinic schools back then would have had a a prayer to kind of, as a form of identity or a creed. So John would have taught his disciples a specific prayer. They would have all prayed it, and that was their way of identifying each other. So in some way, you can hear the disciples saying, come on, Jesus, this is what real rabbis do. Give us a prayer. They were were hungry for it. They wanted that sense of of culture, of, of naming. So then we can read the Lord's Prayer in a way as, as the Jesus Creed. I live in a, in a townhouse right on a park, just three minutes that way, with Tish and Tessa, it's pretty fun. Um, and a lot of this sermon has been birthed in view of the park, whether I'm in my room looking at the park, walking around the park, sitting in the park. It's been very forefront in my mind. And, and as the weather warms and the trees are greening, picnics in the park are top of mind. So when you picture yourself at a picnic this morning, on a warm, sunny day, you're on a picnic rug in a park or your backyard, surrounded by friends and whanau, and there's a feast laid before you. Maybe there's some roast chicken, maybe there's a salad, some cookies, some buns. There's a lot of food and it's good food. I want us to walk through the Lord's Prayer in a similar fashion, that as we sit with the Lord in a, on a picnic blanket in the, in the park, He's calling us to feast, to dig deep into the gifts of prayer that he offers. There's a banquet here and there is depth. So we kind of make our way through the picnic with each section of the prayer as a dish. So first up, we've got adoration. This is our first, first offering at the picnic. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In praying this, we remember who God is who we are, and who we are to each other. We were just singing, good, good, Father, and that that intimacy of calling God Father, it doesn't shock us like it would have back then. Jesus was speaking to disciples who had grown up in a culture of deep temple reverence. But I think we still have the same issue that we struggle with really accepting the love of God. Sure, we can call him Father, but does that actually shape or get deep within us? How often do we avoid coming to God in prayer because we feel like we have to get ourselves right first? If we truly accepted his love for us, we would turn to God in the midst of overwhelm, 
or at the first revelation of our need to confess. In the Garden of Eden, throughout the text, God is referred to as Yahweh Elohim, which translates to Lord God, kind of. When the serpent comes on the scene, Satan as the serpent, he drops the Yahweh and refers to God simply as Elohim. And Elohim in this case functions more as like a, like a title. It's less personable. It would be like just saying doctor instead of Nick, or Dr. Nick. Um, or pastor instead of Pastor David, or David. I'm pretty sure Sydney doesn't call David pastor at home. <laughs> because our, our language speaks to our intimacy. It creates that, that signaling of intimacy. And Eve replies to the serpent in the same manner. She drops the Yahweh and recalls, refers to God as Elohim. And in doing so, when she imagines God as less than an accessible father, she imagines herself as less than a daughter. When she imagines God as less than an accessible father, she imagines herself as less than a daughter. To hallow is to, to make something holy, to set it apart. And hallowing God reframes everything. It places him at the center of our lives. And in doing so, it re- replaces whatever else of the world we have been orbiting around. When we wake up, if the first words out of our mouth, even if we're half awake, are hallowed be your name, that is powerful. If we say that instead of reaching for our phones, it's an act of defiance against the world that is deforming us. The Owl and the Owl Father reminds us who we are to each other. In the West, post-enlightenment, prayer is just another thing that has been individualized. How often, after a beautiful time of prayer on our own with the Lord, we come out from our rooms into the living room and re-enter a familiar argument with, with flatmates or a family. Maybe you're greeted with a pile of dishes that someone said they would wash. Or someone else makes a quick, sarcastic remark birthed in their own stressful day that sets you on defense. It's not, it's not a silver bullet, but beginning prayer with an Our Father reframes our closest relationships. So some mornings I'd call you to, to pray this with people in your household. And then other mornings, when you're praying on your own, let that Our kind of permeate through the prayer as you move to pray, to pray outwards and pray for others. There's a call, throughout this prayer, there's a call to partner with God in doing that kind of emotionally healthy work, seeing these, these quips as invitations to really dive deeper into, into healthy communication. So next up, at our banquet, at our picnic, we have a, a feast of intercession. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This embodies our call to actively bridge heaven and earth here and now. Grabbing a bit of the kingdom and bringing it into our daily lives wherever we may be. Slowly and faithfully, our world is being reordered and oriented in the way of Christ, in the way of heaven. Calbart, the Swiss theologian, says, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of the uprising against the disorder of the world. So much truth there. Intercession means, means to go between, to, to talk to one on behalf of another, to advocate for one, to, to bring God's kingdom from one space to another. And Eugene Peterson, he's talked a lot about this, this middle voice where we join with action that is already happening. And it's a, the middle voice is a grammatical or linguistic 
um, term in the original Greek that we don't have in English, um, but it's, it's a bit nerdy, but in the sentence structure, um, the, the tense used here means that the action does not start or end with the, ob the subject or the object. The action is happening and the subject asks to participate in that action. Lingu linguistically in English, the closest we get to it would be to take action. This is a, a function of intercession in a way. And that's how this prayer is written. So in 2019 in Thailand, I was leading a mission trip there, leading a team of five people, and there was um, a lot of disunity in the team, particularly with a couple of people. Let's call them Lindsay and Sam, because that was their names. <laughs> And it was, tensions were high. We were, everyone was bickering at each other. It was crazy. We were trying to, trying to work on what God had given us to do and people were storming off. It was, it was chaos. So me as the leader, I was so frustrated. I kind of tried everything to get them to, to reconcile, to come to unity. And then I, I just turned to prayer, probably out of a exasperation myself. Um, but I committed to rise earlier each morning to go outside and circle our accommodation and pray pleading with the Holy Spirit to, to shift things in the spirit realm that I couldn't shift in the physical. And I was, I was simply joining the work that God was doing. He was already at work in Lindsay and Sam's hearts. And it, he did. He shifted things. I was reading back through my journal this week, and shortly after I started to pray, we had a, we had a girls' night together, and it was really, really good. And we were able to focus more on what we were doing in the community. And I also noticed that the, the more that I prayed for unity, the more God gave me action steps to take in actively leading, kind of mediating some conflict resolution conversations, all the things. It was a, a prayer and my action combined. So if, if God is all-powerful and he is all-knowing and he's already active, then why, why pray? What's the function of our measly little prayers? There is so much mystery here, which is simply a sweet invitation. But I also wonder if our understanding of God has been shaped more by Aristotle and his concept of the, the unmoved mover, kind of the origin of all things that doesn't move. I wonder if that has shaped our, our understanding of God more than the truth of Scripture. Because Jesus follows the Lord prayer, Lord's Prayer in Luke 11 with a parable about persistence that changes actions, that man who's knocking on the door all night long. And similarly, we see in the, in the pleading, desperate prayers of Moses, where God's heart was moved and things were, were changed. God is a moved mover. I don't know how this works, but the mystery, the potential, and the invitation to trust excites me. We, we as a church, we pray and we long for revival, much like we saw at Asbury earlier this year in Kentucky. But God, he longs for revival too, but God longs to see cities reborn. And that happens through a mountain of prayer. That's how things shift. That's how things are embedded and are sustained, is through consistent prayer. We join the action of the Holy Spirit within and around us. We intercede and bring a piece of heaven down to earth, slowly, faithfully, day in and day out we are transformed and our city is reborn. So moving, moving around our picnic, we're feasting and there's a fresh loaf of fresh bread. It's beautiful. Which brings us to petition. 
give us today our daily bread. So this week I was, I was sitting in the park, I was listening to someone else's sermon on the Lord's Prayer at, at dog o'clock, when, like kind of five, six, when all the people are out walking their dogs in the park. It's one of my favorite times. Um, but I was sitting there on a blanket, had my, my headphones in, um, and I was focused. I'm like, cool, I've got this amount of time to finish the sermon, let's do it. Um, and literally every two to three minutes, a dog would come over and say hi, and then the owner would say hi. I was like, this is ridiculous, I just need to focus on the Lord. <laughs> I was getting frustrated. And then so quickly, the Lord was like, Hannah, come on. I'm like, okay. Um, but that like, realization that he was answering more specific prayers that I had been praying. I'd been praying for an increase of random interactions with non-believers, specifically my neighbors, and here he was answering it right in front of me. <laughs> and I was just focused on doing the thing. When I realized that, I got so excited, and I started having conversations and making new friends. Nobody, nobody came to Christ in Bradford Park that day that I know of, <laughs> but my heart was alive in noticing God's answer to that prayer. And I welcomed these interruptions and began some relationships with the people that I see most every day. Jesus says to ask and we shall receive. How specific can we get, though? If you think about about praying for a parking space, I'm sure we've all prayed for one at one point or another. I don't know about you, but I've cringed at myself any time that I have. (laughs) Like, how dare I ask God for for a simple thing like a parking space? Why am I even driving? Should we go on a bike? All the things. (laughs) But this week I was reading of Rosie Miller, who was a mission worker in Uganda, post Yemen in the Civil War. When she was over there, she asked God for everything, and he provided again and again and again. It was part of her habit. She prayed and God showed up. And then she was back in the U.S. Her adult son, Paul, kind of cynically questioned her on why she prayed for parking spaces in the States. Her answer well, how else would I get one? How else would she get one? I don't know about you, but I'd rather have that kind of dependence and intimacy, childlike with God, than any sense of self-righteousness that I gain in not asking God for a park. Gratitude is the God-given reward for those who can stomach praying for little things. Praying ordinary small prayers is another way that we bring the kingdom of God to earth. It's an antidote to a theology that is perhaps big enough to support our worldview, but at times too big to enter the ordinariness of our daily lives. God delights to give us gifts, and he treasures all of our requests, big and small. So structurally in this prayer, daily bread is the the chiasm, or kind of the hinge, the central point on which this prayer falls. It's right in the middle, and it follows up from the the upward focus of the first half. We're praying in your name for your kingdom and your will. We're focusing God on his kingdom. And then the transition to bringing that to earth begins with, with daily bread. Give us, forgive us, lead us. This first refocus from God and his kingdom to how that breaks into our world is this prayer for daily bread, for simple, ordinary bread, a simple ask. But this, yes, God can show up, but as, as we mentioned, we were with, with the Barnett family on Friday at the funeral. We'd been, we'd been praying with them for miraculous healing over the last years since the diagnosis. And then there we were, sitting at Jody's funeral, 
There was, the weight of grief was so thick in that room. Unanswered prayers, right? Sometimes God answers our prayers miraculously, and sometimes he doesn't. I myself received some healing at Easter camp when one of our youth, Evie, prayed for my voice that was on its way out. I know other stories of profound healing, and I, many of my friends have prayed and seen God's ridiculous provision. And I also know, like on, on Friday at Jody's funeral, the, the grief and confusion of unanswered prayer. I have little to offer in response to the mystery of that. But as Mother, Mother Teresa wrote, Prayer enlarges the heart until it is capable of containing God's gift of himself. Ask and seek, and your heart will grow big enough to receive him and keep him as your own. So often we pray for the gifts, but instead we receive the giver, Christ himself. I know Jesus empathizes with and understands our experience of unanswered prayer or God's silence, and it did little to stop him from communing with God. If anything, unanswered prayer can call us deeper into the Lord. We move to to confession at our picnic. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Sin, sin gets in the way of what we were created for, to give and to receive love. And moments of sin are, are an unveiling, kind of like we've talked about. Getting defensive to that sarcastic comment, it reveals what's going, really going on inside of us. Road rage, or cycle lane rage, on an ordinary day's commute to work, it reveals our, our white-knuckle grip on control. Or the chicken recipe revealing pride within me. We can respond to moments like this that reveal our sin. We can respond with self-condemnation, self-justification, or true confession and repentance. When we, when we name the sin, when we confess and receive forgiveness, we open ourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit in reforming us in the way of Christ. We partner with this work in taking steps of emotional health. It could look like praying for the next driver that you see that gives you cords for road rage. Rich Mullins, the iconic worship leader of the 80s and 90s, said that growing up as a child, he repented annually at summer camps that he went to. Then when he got into college, it was kind of every semester when they had a young adult service. And then he was repenting about quarterly as he was a working professional. And then when he spoke on this in his 40s, he was up to about four times a day. It's repentance and confession is so much more than just a moment of receiving Christ. It's a regular, beautiful, and necessary thing. And when it's framed in the reverent intimacy of the Our Father, it's a gift. When we keep short accounts, we receive grace upon grace upon grace. And we come again and again to the throne of God through an empathetic high priest that Hebrews tells us about, Jesus. As we confess, our disordered desires are slowly reordered around the way of Jesus and our faithful and frequent confession. King David, who was a man after God's own heart, had a pretty, pretty hefty track record for sin. 
but he chose to run to the Father in the midst of it. He didn't, he didn't hide. Might we do the same? I love that in this prayer, Jesus links our forgiveness with the need to forgive others. And it's so true that as we experience the, the depth of, of God's love, as we drink deep of the living water, we can't not go and express that to those around us. God's heart is for unity, and he uses forgiveness to make us one, just as he and the Father are one. In pausing to confess and receive forgiveness these past couple of weeks, the Lord has like quite surprisingly reminded me of people that I need to forgive or pursue relational health with. It's been, it's been really cool. Okay, final stop at our picnic. Maybe it's a cookie. Is anybody hungry? <laughs> um, protection. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul reminds us that our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. Jesus began his ministry with, with 40 days of fasting in the desert, engaging in spiritual warfare before he began his three years of ministry. I think 2023 in Aotearoa, we're pretty, pretty shy of talking about spiritual evil. And this is, this is new culturally. It's not normative of history, nor is it normative of the, the majority world. But when Jesus said this, this last line, deliver us from the evil one, to the, the crowd he was speaking to, it would have land, landed in three different ways. First up, you had the, the Sadducees, and they were the, the sophisticated political maneuverers. They primarily saw the kingdom of God as a socio-political reality. They were way more involved in, in government and how the way of Jesus impacted society and structures and how we do life. And they thought that angels and demons and that kind of spiritual reality was, was primitive. This is 2,000 years ago, and they thought it was primitive. But, and then in the other camp, you have the, the Essenes, and these guys were out, out in the wilderness, out in the desert, and they were living a, a radically limited lifestyle. They were fasting and praying, and to them, everything was spiritual warfare. They, that's how they, they saw the reality of God. And then you also had the, the Pharisees who would have responded, and, and they see evil as something to combat personally in your personal holiness journey. That to overcome evil, you can just, if you obey all 613 rules of the Torah, you can, you can get there. You can make yourself holy, you can limit yourself, and it'll, you'll get there. But I offer this because I think we can see ourselves in each of these camps as well. We might, in hearing about evil or praying against evil, we might, like the Sadducees, prefer to see it as, or to name how the, the devil might be working among us as in terms of psychology or philosophy, like what's, what's happening in culture, what's happening in, in people's, people's minds, and put it in that kind of label. Or we might, like the Essenes, um, be the kind of people that, that are more likely to, to pray than go to the doctor. You know, that every, there's a devil behind every bush. Everything's spiritual warfare. It's all, it's all there. Or we might also be like the Pharisees who are more focused on doing a few more Bible studies, getting our willpower in check. Let's, let's make ourselves better and more holy to overcome evil. But Jesus, Jesus challenges all three responses. He calls us higher. He, he combines a sober recognition of the reality of spiritual warfare with an earthly dose of good humor and common sense found in the rest of the Lord's Prayer. 
As C.S. Lois said in his book, Screwtape Letters, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Yeah, Jesus. Jesus goes higher. It's real, but it's, it's not to be feared under the victory of Christ. So in practice, this can look like kind of discerning and naming some spirits and tactics of the, of the evil one around us. And then to embody the equal and opposite spirit of God. For example, in your workplace, you might be witnessing a lot of greed. You can name it, pray against it, and then embody radical generosity. Or in your, in your family or your school place, there might be, you might be experiencing a lot of arrogance or pride. Name it, pray against it, and then embody radical humility that combats it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because in, in praying this way and living this, as Karl Barth says, in Christian prayer, we find ourselves at the very seat of government, at the very heart of the mystery and purpose of all occurrence. We're partnering with God to exercise his authority in the spirit realm and here on earth. The way that add on thine may the kingdom power and the glory. And they're just an, an echo of David's words from centuries prior. I think we added it because as a society we don't like ending on evil. This is meant to be a triumph and victorious prayer. Or maybe because we think we can end a prayer better than Jesus. Don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with praying thine be the kingdom, glory and the power. It also kind of forms a bit of a bookend to the adoration that we started with good thing to pray this, this prayer is simple enough for a child to memorize yet it is profound enough to sustain a lifetime of prayer there's, there's so much power in this prayer if we, if we prayed like this, if we began each day hallowing God's name above all else if we brought our specific requests to God if we forgave, if we received forgiveness things would look different. And friends, some mornings it'll be 20 seconds of praying as you're running out the door, and that's fine. And other mornings, it'll be a template to sit and to feast with God, to dig deep into each of these themes, from adoration, intercession, petition, confession, and protection. If you, if you think back on all the prayers that you've prayed in the past couple of weeks, if God answered them all today, right now, how different would Sydney look? How different would your neighborhood look? Your workplace, your family? I don't know about you, but my prayers need to, need to rise. Yeah, this week, let's, let's all do this together. Let's pray more regularly and more specifically as Christ modeled and taught for us here how much then closer would heaven to earth be as we do?